a quick reminder before we start that we are in the middle of our two-in-one winter fundraiser to raise funds for my upcoming Climate Ride event, raising money to fight against climate change, alongside a membership drive for the show, including incentives like exclusive t-shirts and hoodies that we only make available during these drives. Check out the campaign at bestoftheleft.com slash winter17. Find the big banner right on our homepage or click the link in the show notes on your listening device. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which it will be explained why people of color riot, how women of color don't get the solidarity from others that they should, how they almost single-handedly won the Alabama Senate race, and stick around to the end for the lessons the Democratic Party needs to learn from the Doug Jones victory. Our clips today come from Newsbeat, In the Thick, Ring of Fire, the Young Turks, Revolutionary Left Radio, The Zero Hour, and Sunday Civics. We don't call it a riot. We call it an uprising because it was a collective response to oppression. One of the things that people need to keep in mind, and one of the reasons we call it a rebellion is because this was happening all over the country. Many people don't know that between 1960 and 1972, there were more than 1,000 recorded urban civil disturbances or riots in the United States. In naming it that, you bring yourself closer to the reality that brought it into being. In In calling it a rebellion, See, if it's a riot, people think a riot's like after the basketball game, college, after the soccer game, Europe. You know, they think of some trivial reason. Understandable excitement. Red Sox fans waited 18 years for a trip back to the World Series. Some fans took the celebration too far. mischief in the streets and damaging property. I also condemn, in the harshest words possible, the actions of the punks last night who turned our city's victory into an opportunity for violence and mindless destruction. You know, but when you say rebellion, everybody knows that when you say rebellion, you're talking about something civic, something social, something really serious happened. When you say rebellion, the shooting of 18 year old Michael Brown has opened a wound in the community. The violence which erupted in the anger following a candlelight vigil has taken place in Ferguson, a suburban St. Louis. Because most people at some point in their own histories, you know, if you Irish, you know about the Irish rebellion, (laughs) you know, you American, you know about American Revolution. It's only when you come to black people that the idea of people using force to change or to address their situation becomes taboo. Last night again in suburban St. Louis, the scene that photographers captured looked like a police state. Using the same tactical get-up and the same weaponry we've come to expect in urban warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan, police in Ferguson, Missouri once again had to put down and head off violence in the streets following the shooting days ago of a young unarmed black man who was supposed to head off to college this week. Now in the American Revolution, 
all kind of force was used. People don't talk about human rights when they tarred and feathered Tories up, up there in West Orange here in New Jersey. You know, people don't call the Boston Tea Party a riot. That was a riot, you know. They, I mean, they dressed up like somebody else and went and destroyed the property, threw the tea overboard. But when black people, oh no, black people cannot bear arms. Look, when Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Thaddeus Stevens went to Abraham Lincoln and told him that he needed to put arms in the hands of the people who had the biggest vested interest in winning this civil war, he winced. <laughs> because what's the immediate thought? Well, we put guns in their hands, they're going to get revenge for what, what we did to them for the past 200 years. I don't think you can ever predict a riot, though. And Martin Luther King said a riot is the language of the unheard. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. Uh, it has a particular singularity and its distinctiveness that you've got a lot of oppressive conditions, you've got levels of social misery, but they can be in place for a while and there's still no riot. And what is it that America has failed to hear? Usually there's a particular moment where the righteous indignation spills over because people can just no longer take it. It's failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It could be a police killing a fellow citizen. It could be an act of violence, an ugly act of a violation of respect of somebody. It's got to be something that's deeply psychic and it touches the spirit of a people. They reach the point where they actually engage in rebellion. How many summers like this one do you imagine that we can expect? Well, I would say this, we don't have long. The mood of the Negro community now is one of urgency, one of saying that we aren't going to wait, that we've got to have our freedom. We've waited too long. So that uh, I would say that every summer we are going to have this kind of vigorous protest. My hope is that it will be nonviolent. I would hope that we can avoid riots because riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. I would hope that we can avoid riots, but that we will be as militant and as determined next summer and through the winter uh, as we have been this summer. And I think the answer about how long it will take will depend on the federal government, on the city halls of our various cities, and on white America to a large extent. This is where we are at this point, and I think white America will determine how long it will be and which way we go in the future. In the last 40 or 50 years old, it tends to have to do with the relations of everyday people with the raw violence of the nation state in the form of the police, in the form of police murder, police violence, police brutality. Uh, that's not the only one, but that tends to be the one. Now, of course, when Rodney King got beat up in L.A., that was major in 92. What most Americans saw when they watched Rodney King struck 56 times by white policemen, a jury saw different. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Lawrence M. Powell, not guilty of the crime of assault by force likely to produce great bodily injury and with a deadly weapon. And that had to do very much with police violence and police abuse. 
But there's something about the public display of raw violence on people, especially innocent people, where people reach the point they just can't take it any longer. There's got to be some kind of resistance that spills over beyond uh, legal means. There hasn't been a decade since 1967 when there wasn't an urban uprising somewhere in the United States of America. I mean, look at what happened after Rodney King in Los Angeles, in Cincinnati, in Florida, in Liberty City. You know, I mean, every decade there's been some uprising. I think that uh, massive oppression goes hand in hand with forms of resistance. And, uh, and riots oftentimes are forms of resistance and therefore they're unavoidable and inescapable. They're, they're always already there as possibilities and as long as you have you know, um, economic exploitation, cultural degradation, uh, psychic put-down injury and assault on a chronic basis, you're going to have riots and rebellions. hard for me to believe that in this day and age, 2014, so many years after Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, we're seeing National Guard troops on the street to prevent this kind of violence in this day and age. It's something I didn't think we'd be seeing again. It would be interesting if the corporate media turned the cameras on the daily funerals of the young brothers and sisters who died before 18 years old. If they kept track of the dilapidated housing if they really went inside the school system, not first and foremost the prison system, they make big money on that, but the school system. Follow a young brother and sister trying to get a job, year in, year out, still unemployed. Get a job, underemployed, no trade union to protect them. Follow that and then make the connection between this one moment, this catalyst, police brutality, and then the righteous indignation. And then you say, put yourself in their shoes. How long would you remain? silent? How long would you remain complacent? How long would you remain contented? Put yourself in their space. Get out of your own egocentric predicament and conceive of the world through the lens of somebody else. Get your feet in somebody else's shoes for a while and you see what the world is like. What are you feeling, Maria? Because we've been talking a lot, but we've never had a moment to to really express this publicly. What are you feeling, Maria? Oh, I think I'm feeling a lot of really complicated emotions like the rest of us. I mean, the fact that we have been so invisible from the conversation has just been so noticeable to me. And I'm just like, whoa, man, people don't even realize. One, the assumption that we're not being assaulted. You know, if we started to go down the list, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hashtag me too, hashtag yo también. If, if there's just the three of us mm. started going down the list, 
it would not be pretty. The letter from the farm workers inspired someone, and I forgive me for not remembering her name, but someone tweeted, you know, we're talking a lot about actresses and not enough about yep. hotel maids, yep. right? So if this is how you treat the likes of a Gwyneth Paltrow or somebody exactly. who is, you know, powerful or, you know, power adjacent at the very least, how are you treating the poor women or the women of color, you know, or in your lives, right? The only that I've heard, the only um, Weinstein accuser that actually had audio of one of their of their encounter was Ambra Gutierrez, right? And how quickly her name right. and her story disappeared from right. this whole, you know, media cycle. And it was horrifying, mm-hmm. right? That audio mm. was just, it was devastating to hear. The most jaded women that I spoke to spoke of, of listening to that audio and just being chilled to the bone, you know, and it, it also brought to mind Dominique Strauss-Kahn, right? That's and just exactly how quickly people thinking. looked at the woman, you know, looked at the accuser and said, she's an overweight African hotel maid. Why on earth would he be attracted to her? And it was an open and shut case. And then they they, they accused her of, of prostitution at mm-hmm. some point, yeah. which was like horrible. Yeah. But I mean, and then yeah. we, you know, this conversation was, well, you know, I don't understand why women don't come forward. It, you know, when you're dealing with powerful men, Not only will they destroy you, they'll destroy your livelihood and everyone around you. And when they surveyed hotel maids, you know, what, 67 percent said that some man had answered the door or been in the room in some way, shape or form and exposed himself. But this is, you know, this is an occupation where you need this job. This isn't some fun money. Right. And you know Mm -hmm. that if you go to your boss and you say the man in suite 1624 exposed himself, who's going to get fired and who's going to get kicked out of the hotel? He definitely is not going to get kicked out of the hotel. And you are definitely going to get fired. You know, it's very interesting because I've been hearing a lot of women talking about um, how they feel like, you know, the men who have been setting the tone of the coverage. I mean, even at NPR, you know, Mike Oreskes um, is no longer there, but he was leading the coverage until he resigned mm-hmm. about male sexual abusers. And he was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I just remember feeling like, but this is how POC feel all the time. Like we do not. But we are always kind of uh, othered by you. And you're always kind of making these determinations. It's very interesting to see women white women feeling this way. You know, just even in the conversation about Joe Biden 2020, right? You can Google Mm -hmm. all of the YouTube clips of him being creepy. And, you know, they call them creepy. But, you know, some people might call it sexual assault when you're whispering in someone's ear or massaging their shoulders against their will or holding them way too closely. But to say nothing about his behavior with the Anita Hill uh, Mm -hmm. proceedings, right? And when he gave this lukewarm apology last week, to me... It just frustrated me to no end, because when you think about women of color, black women in particular, who right now are holding up this democracy. That's right? it. Yeah. If, it if, it, if it were not for black women, the Democratic Party, goodbye. We, I mean, <laughs> ergo, ergo goodbye, the nation. Yeah, and even in the case of the Me Too hashtag, which blew up the Internet, everyone's crediting actor Alyssa Milano, right, with starting it. But it was actually started by a woman of color. Tarana Burke right. 10 years ago. Yep. So why, Jamila? Why the invisibility? You know, I mean, 
Yeah, in 30 seconds or less, by the way. <laughs> it's like, can we talk about the world history? <laughs> and, and, you know, of course, I love Tarana. She's a friend of mine. She's somebody I've admired for a very long time. On some level, is it celebrity versus, you know, someone who's not a celebrity? Sure. But ultimately, who advocates for black women, right? If we, if in our own, in these subgroups that we belong to, if the story of racial struggle has centered around the experiences of black men, so much so the Black women are more likely to mobilize and come together when a young black man has been killed or harmed by police than we have been when, you know, something happens to a black girl or woman. There's nothing resembling sisterhood between black women and white women, period. Okay, like there may be their individual friendships, their familial relationships, there are mothers and daughters, but there's no overall sense of sisterhood. They feel no sense of loyalty or protection or connection to us. You know, who who listens to us, right? And so who are we gonna who who's left? We turn to white guys, you know, we turn to non black people of color who have gotten so much of their education on how to deal with black folks from white supremacy. It's really unfortunate. That's not to say that we don't have, you know, solidarity that there aren't pockets of solidarity among those groups, right? With a lot of Latinx women, with indigenous women. But overall, it's not unpopular to hate black women. I suddenly had that moment of seeing the Michelle Obama fist bump uh, cover of The New Yorker, right? And it was just like, oh, my God, we mm. remember that? Mm-hmm. How much people mm-hmm. was like, well, we hate her. Keep in mind, when Barack Obama first ran for the presidency, she Michelle was Obama was relegated to black churches and HBCUs only. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until she went on The View with her new haircut and her new J. Crew outfit mm. that she became the yep. black girl best friend. Whoa, yeah. <laughs> Yikes. The sidekick to white women, <laughs> right? And that's when she said she wanted to be mom-in-chief, not a grown yeah. double Ivy lawyer. Uh-oh. But I think white folks like their POCs a certain way, and they especially like their black women a certain way. And, you know, when you look at Condoleezza and Oprah, you know, both non-married, hyper successful, no no husband, no children. Right. And Michelle Obama stopped being, you know, the more educated wife to her husband and became the mom. And she gardens with her double Ivy degrees from Harvard Law School and Princeton. And she's sitting there playing double Dutch and planting vegetables for eight years. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that she didn't do great things for health, but like, let's be clear. I think her talents could have used in a lot of other ways for eight years. Okay. (laughs) Now, is, is it also that for women of color, for professional women, for for women of color in Hollywood, that um, for us as journalists, right, that if we come forward, the stakes are just that much higher. We do not have anything to fall back on, that that is perhaps another reason why we have not been hearing what we know has happened, that women of color have been assaulted from Hollywood to the hotel rooms and the farms. You know, Black women and women of color are always expected to be the support staff for everyone else, especially when things go wrong. Mm. But when we look around, we are always by ourselves in the cold, right? White women are never to be found when it comes time for this. Therefore, you know, the Women's March for me was something that I chose not to participate in. Like, I don't feel the sisterhood. And I think it's false. And I think that white women have to do a lot more to gain my trust before we're in lockstep.
If you were watching the returns come in on Tuesday night for the Alabama special Senate election, uh, they kept showing, you know, the Doug Jones, uh, headquarters of the Roy Moore headquarters, things at Roy Moore's headquarters, obviously pretty quiet throughout most of the night, especially towards the end as the uh, final results were trickling in. But over at the Doug Jones side, people were going absolutely nuts over the fact that Doug Jones first of all, was about to win and then did win the special election. Just take a look at how excited everybody in that room got when those last returns came in. Wolf, it is absolutely deafening in here. This news just coming across the screen there from the horse's mouth. I can barely hear myself. Absolute jubilation. This is coming in a lot sooner than people thought. I'd been told by senior campaign sources that they were expecting this to go on all night. They thought it was going to be extremely close and that it would come down to a coin flip. And now here in this ballroom at the Birmingham Sheraton, you've got people pouring in. The people in that room have absolutely every right to be that ecstatic, even more so. Doug Jones is the first Democrat to win a Senate seat from the state of Alabama since the year 1990, 27 years since that state last elected their last Democrat to the United States Senate. And most of the credit, let's not forget this, most of the credit for that victory goes to black women. They turned out in that state in record numbers on Tuesday, and they are the group that propelled Doug Jones into that Senate seat. I hope, I hope Doug Jones remembers that. And more importantly, I hope the rest of the Democratic Party understands that. You can shape your policies to make sure that you let that one group, that one group that is always on your side, let them know that you're also on their side. That's the challenge now. Last night was the time for celebration and possibly even through Wednesday. But beyond that, it's time to get to work. It's time to let these women know, and, and, and African-American men, they, they were out there in strong force too. Doug Jones won every single block of white voters, men, women, college educated, non-college educated. It was the African-American vote and specifically African-American women that put Doug Jones in the Senate. And it's time that we understand that and we respect that and we stop the economic warfare basically that we have launched as a country on that group of people. We have to do better. They've done better for us. And now it's time for Doug Jones to get into the Senate and make damn sure that everybody there understands why he's there and who put him there. Because it just as easily could have swung the other way. Had he not been running against an accused pedophile, I seriously doubt this election would have gone in Jones's favor. But because of the constant attacks we've seen on the African-American community from the president, from these uh, 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 racist organizations that are popping up feeling empowered now, these men and women came out on Tuesday and they showed that they're not going to back down. They're going to come out in full force and they made the difference. That is what we all need to learn from this. So yes, we need to be celebrating like the people in that room were, but not just for Doug Jones, for every African-American in the state of Alabama that came out and helped put him in office.
We are in the midst of our two-in-one winter fundraiser, which is both a fundraiser to fight climate change through Climate Ride, and also a membership drive to help sustain the show. And recently I've been thanking all of the Climate Ride donors, which has actually left me a very good problem to have, but it's left me with a backlog of members of the show to thank. So, huge thanks to recent Social Justice Warrior-level members Fred G., Katie Ann U., Dominic, Brian P., Megan M., Erica B., Kenna H., and Jeffrey D. And as a reminder, members are absolutely critical to the production of this show. You know, we don't make nearly enough in advertising revenue to pay for everything we do. And ads have never been enough to run this show, but they've actually been dwindling even more recently, making members all that much more important. So thanks again to all of those who've been supporting the show, whether you've been chipping in for years or just signed up. Uh, it's really appreciated. If you've been thinking about signing up, but you haven't quite pulled the trigger yet, now really is a pretty good time because you can get free apparel as a thank you gift if you support both my Climate Ride fundraiser and become a member at the same time. For all the details, just head to bestoftheleft.com and click the huge winter fundraiser banner at the top of the homepage. Uh, or, of course, there's a convenient link right in the show notes that you can probably click from the device you're using to listen to the show right now. Thanks again in advance for your support. John Lehane would like for us to chat about voter suppression. When we talked about this race, I don't know, a month ago, you mentioned the fact that there really is no state in this country where a Democrat could be a confirmed child molester and still be up in the polls and still be close to winning. So that just shows you how difficult the terrain is in Alabama for Democrats to be kind of out as Democrats. And what a lot of people might not know about Southern politics is that it's very racialized, uh, and Eric knows this really well, that Democrat is coded as, as black in, in the South. Uh, and Republicans have uh, very deliberately played on that, that prejudice and done everything they can to actually boost as, as many uh, black Democrats so that they can tell all their racist white voters, look, see, all Democrats are black. That means you must be a Republican. Don't worry about what our platform is or whether or not we're helping you at all. Yeah, I mean, the thing I would say to that is that it's not just anti-black, but what, what it, the sentiment is anti-black and white coalitions. That's what in the right. South, the Reconstruction governments infuriated them so much. Eric's exactly right that Doug Jones is, is the Republicans' worst nightmare. When a white Democrat wins in the South, that's the thing that really scares them. And especially, you know, if a white Democrat wins with a surge in, in black turnout and, and shows that there could be a coalition of poor whites and poor blacks, because if those two uh, factions get together in Alabama, uh, even if a, a sliver of the poor white vote uh, decides that they're going to join uh, the Democratic Party, you know, they're they're absolutely annihilated. You know, the, the, num the number of poor people in Alabama far, far outweigh uh, the number of rich people more so than probably in any other state. So I'm not sure if he wants to talk about present day voter suppression. I heard that people were going to the polls and being told that they weren't regular voters enough. Yeah, there's on, on Twitter, there were and Facebook, there were all kinds of stories of people showing up and they had just voted in November and now they're being told they're no longer on the rolls here. And I actually want to. 
office bet on on Doug Jones. I should have I should have gotten odds too, but I took him straight up. I thought that there was a good chance. I, I wasn't sure if it would be stolen at the end. I knew that more people would leave their house that morning or that evening with the intention of voting for Doug Jones than Roy Moore, but I wasn't certain that all of them would be able to vote. Um, so he may have won by actually significantly more than the, than the official total, which was what, about 22,000 or so. He may have won by a hundred thousand, uh, but many of those votes end, end up being suppressed in a variety of different ways that Eric's reported a lot on. So now on the screen is the article that you wrote with Jonathan Lee Crone about the African American vote. So tell us about what you wrote. Um, kudos to Jonathan who, correctly saw what the story was going to be. He went to the uh, rural black areas of Alabama. The best piece of news that he had for Democrats was that Doug Jones made a what should be uh, an obvious decision, but hadn't been done a lot in the past that made all the difference. And so his campaign uh, directly funded what's known as the Alabama Democratic Conference, which is effectively the Alabama black machine, the, the rural black machine run by an old uh, party boss named Joe Reed. So Doug Jones campaign said, here's the money that you need for your get out the vote operation. However, you however you want to run the operation, go and do it, which is such a smarter strategy than coming to Washington and finding uh, a consultant who worked for John Ossoff uh, and, you know, is using some new text messaging app that they say is going to revolutionize politics or whatever kind of scam they're running and having that money just just burnt and thrown away. But the, you know, Jones ran an actual substantive campaign. He, you know, everywhere in the black community, he was arguing, look, get me in. First thing I'm going to do is push for chip reauthorization, which we've talked a lot here, that Republicans have allowed the children's health insurance program uh, to expire because they say they can't find a couple billion dollars while they're working on a $6 trillion tax cut for this, the super rich. And so Jones very wisely you know, f- focused on that issue and said, it's the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tr- make sure that that program is reauthorized. And, and he will be one more vote to reauthorize that. So it was not an empty, empty promise. And otherwise he ran a progressive campaign, uh, which leaned into uh, a lot of the policy positions that black voters in Alabama already had. Uh, he did not try to be like a, a Republican Bubba light and, and say like that he's, uh, you know, just as, as pro gun and pro war and pro life as, as Republicans, except he has a, Demo- a D on his name. That, that was not at all the campaign he ran. He ran as an actual progressive Democrat and, uh, the black community responded to that. And just real quick history lesson. I mean, the invention of voter suppression in the South came after emancipation when the freedmen were allowed to vote. Black white coalitions were actually controlling the government. They were legislating for things like public schools that were funded by the former slave owners tax dollars. They didn't like it. And so they created things like the Ku Klux Klan and the red shirts to prevent black-white coalitions by preventing black people from voting. And I like to point that out because a, a lot of white people will look at voter suppression that's targeting minorities and go, well, it's not me. But if you're a progressive white, that is you because they're taking away your ability to elect the leaders of your choice. Yes. So it, after after the Civil War, when freed slaves were uh, given the, you know, won the, won the right to vote, the uh, legislatures were extremely progressive, made up something like a third of the legislators were black. 
around the South, there were a couple of black senators. Louisiana briefly had a black governor. This was the you know, late 1860s or, or, or 1870s. You couldn't even be a voter if you were black. You know, 30 years, 30 years later, first the Jim Crow stretch that lasted, you know, pretty much up until the next uh, civil rights movement. And this is why I disagreed with a lot of pundits who said that it's a lose lose for the Republicans, that if Roy Moore had been elected, it would have been a loss for them. I really feel that in the same way that, you know, for a hundred years, there was no white person in the United States convicted of killing a black person for a hundred years during the Jim Crow era. And, and what that basically said was, is that you may as well not even get up off the mat. You're down. You're getting kicked. Every once in a while, they lynch somebody or rape someone and nothing is going to be done about it. And I feel that if more had won, the message to America would have been, child molester, abject racist, doesn't matter, we can just trounce you. W.E.B. Du Bois coined a term called double consciousness to illustrate the psychological experience of being born black in a racist white supremacist society. It's a deeply powerful and moving concept, which like when I was first introduced, it like overwhelmed me with like a lightning strike of understanding. Like it hit me and I kind of saw it for what it was. And I thought it was a very crucial concept for people to understand. So, so what is double consciousness and how have you personally experienced it throughout your life? So double consciousness is a doozy, um, and it's basically the way in which you are trying to navigate through white supremacy as a black person and as you, because white supremacy is incredibly, it's, it's, it's deep. Like the conditioning is so deep. The way that you come to understand yourself is so deep and so powerful and so harmful. So as you try to see the world for what it is, you begin to internalize, um, all of these white supremacist scripts that are imposed upon you, um, and these tropes that you're forced to fit into. And you are constantly seeing the world and also measuring and understanding yourself through that same lens. Mm. Um, my experience with, with this kind of double consciousness, I grew up in Missouri and I was trying to understand what it meant. My parents are from Zimbabwe, what it meant to be like Zimbabwean and to be African and to be whatever, while also understanding and trying to learn the most effective way of navigating white supremacy, the way that I perform blackness in a way that isn't so threatening, the way that I carry myself and have conversations with white people to make myself seem the most to be, to seem safe and attractive and, and respectable. Um, and it's, it's, it's some stuff that I have to do in the Academy. It's this respectability politic that you, even as a, as a radical or whatever, sometimes find yourself playing in order to be safe, in order to, to, to enable your, your career to be as successful as possible. You know, it's, and, and it's, and it's this thing that hopefully you understand yourself for what you are, right? You understand yourself as something beyond this construction of white supremacy, beyond a Jezebel or beyond a angry black woman or whatever other, you know, controlling image white supremacy makes for you and to try to understand yourself as what you are. But it can be incredibly difficult because 
you know, it wasn't for, it wasn't until I was maybe in my late teens, early twenties that I started to have any understanding of how white supremacy worked. Um, it's seductive, especially as like a middle-class black person. It's incredibly seductive. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think, I think, you know, that's an example that doesn't get talked about a lot of, of white privilege, you know, that, that double consciousness or that having to constantly be aware of your surroundings and how you're talking and how you're behaving because you don't want to play into certain stereotypes that a white supremacist society has about you. You know, that's a burden that white people don't have to carry. That's a burden that white people have never had to carry and are totally unfamiliar with. And so I, I urge, um, you know, white folks to kind of think about that. Think how hard it must be. You know, I, I interviewed Tanisha, Tanisha Hudson um, about, you know, white supremacy in the, in the South and the monuments and all of that. And her stories of of sort of what she has to put up with and also what it's like to be a mother of black children and the conversations that black parents have to have with their kids that white parents like myself never have to have. You know, it, it's heartbreaking, but it's it's also eye opening in a lot of ways. Before he was one of the great basketball players of all time, Charles Barkley was a native-born son of the Alabama soil. He went back to his home state in recent weeks and ordered a campaign hard for Doug Jones, the Democratic candidate from the Senate who is widely considered an underdog, at least until his opponent, Republican senatorial candidate Roy Moore, uh, revealed more and more aspects of his extraordinarily bizarre retrograde and racist personality. Now, uh, of course, Doug Jones uh, pulled off an upset victory last week, and I want to tell you what Charles Barkley had to say moments after his victory was announced. He said this, among other things, on CNN. He said, this is a wake-up call for Democrats. I told Mr. Jones this, and I love Doug. They've taken the black vote and the poor vote for granted for a long time. It's time for them to get off their ass. Again, I quote Charles Barkley, it's time for them to get off their ass and start making life better for black folks and people who are poor. They've always had our votes, and they have abused our votes. He went on to say, this is a wake-up call for Democrats to do better for black people and poor white people. Now, uh, Mr. Barkley makes a lot of sense there, and I wish more professional Democrats were thinking the way he's thinking, but they were not nearly as insightful in the wake of Doug Jones's election. You know, a centrist slash corporate Democrat will always have one answer to any situation, whether the news is good or bad, whether the candidate has won or lost, the answer is always more corporate centrism. Now, uh, they've been saying that about, um, about Doug Jones's victory, and we'll talk about that for a second. Uh, first of all, uh, Charles Barkley is right when he says that black voters played a critical role in Jones's victory. Without them, we would now be facing the prospect of an accused pedophile, uh, and, uh, someone who is nostalgic for the days of slavery taking a seat in the United States Senate. They re- rescued us from that, as did other Alabama voters, to which I say, Thank you. Um, but now, did they vote for 
Doug Jones because he represented the Institutional Democratic Party, or did they vote against Roy Moore? A clue can be found in the reporting of Washington Post uh, journalist Eugene Scott, who wrote the following. More than two dozen black voters here, and by here he means Birmingham, Alabama, said they did not feel inspired to show up for a candidate who they felt did not aggressively pursue their, their vote. They were moved to wait in line, some people for hours, with the goal of keeping Moore from winning. Now, that's certainly an understandable emotion on their part. Uh, the defrocked uh, judge, Roy Moore, uh, commented that the last time America was great was, quote, at the time when families were united, even though we had slavery, they cared for one another. Now, of course, slavery separated uh, family after family and a horrific, in a horrific ongoing human tragedy. He also said that he thought that all constitutional amendments after the 10th Amendment should be repealed. Now that includes the, uh, the 13th Amendment outlawing slavery and the 14th Amendment guaranteeing citizenship and equal rights for former slaves and their defendants. So this guy was one retrograde piece of work. Now, uh, uh, African-American voters, like others, uh, were aware of the well-documented claims that Roy Moore sexually abused teenage girls and undoubtedly heard his biz bigoted remarks against Muslims and Jews. Now, uh, can we count on uh, the Republican Party nominating an entire national slate of accused pedophiles and pro-slavery advocates who are also religious bigots. I would argue we cannot count on that kind of luck, which means that Democrats, once again, will need to offer an affirmative agenda for the American people, including the very African-American and poor white people that Charles Barkley mentions. It is very much a wake-up call that you cannot count on this kind of luck next time around. Now, just for reference, Democrats, more than 40 Americans are still living in poverty, according to the Census Bureau. In fact, the United States has a higher rate of poverty than any other Western developed country. Get on that, guys, the next time you're in power. Philip Alston, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, recently told a reporter in Alabama that that state's sewage disposal conditions were the worst he'd ever seen in a developed country. Now, residents there, as AL.com reported, often fall ill with, with ailments like E. coli and hookworm, a disease of extreme poverty long eradicated in other parts of the country, in part because they do not have consistently reliable access to clean drinking water that has not been tainted, tainted by raw sewage and other contaminants. Now, that is true in the so-called Black Belt of Alabama, named for the color of the soil. Uh, how long can Democrats count on to be rescued by the very people our government is failing. Now, I could go on and detail all the Democratic centrist pundits on CNN and elsewhere who got this one wrong, claiming that this was a victory for centrism, smearing people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are trying to do something about this shameful state of affairs. But let's look at it this way. Let us keep the message simple. Democrats need to understand that their popularity uh, ratings are at a 25-year low. Also, by the way, 
Norway uh, dropped by 13 points just this year alone among black women. Uh, they need to do something other than hope for good luck or manna to fall from the heavens. Democrats need to offer an affirmative agenda for change until they do their future and therefore ours is in peril. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and looking for a way to express your gratitude, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, thank black women with actions, not just words. In the wake of the Alabama Senate race heard around the world, there has been a lot of well-deserved and overdue thanks going out to black women. According to exit polls, black turnout surged and 98% of Alabama black women who cast ballots voted for Doug Jones, helping deliver a sound victory against Roy Moore. And while words of thanks are important, it's time to turn those words into actions of support for a community that has been at the forefront of critical elections and movements throughout history. Activist and writer Brittany Packett wrote a widely shared article in The Cut that highlights organizations that you can support to put your money where your mouth is when it comes to thanking black women. In it, she writes, quote, Give because our power has been proven time and again, despite movements silencing us, funders forgetting us, and voter suppression restricting us. Give because black women show up to save the country time and again, unquote. Another article along these lines was published in the Little Rock Sun with the title, 15 Ways to Thank Black Women for Carrying the Country on Their Backs. We encourage you to check out both of these articles, which we've linked to in the show notes, but we also wanted to highlight a few of these authors' suggestions on the show today. So, black women are still underrepresented in politics, not surprising. Higher Heights Leadership Fund seeks to elevate black women's voices to shape and advance progressive policies and to provide opportunities for these women to build their leadership skills. Check out their hashtag BlackWomenLead to help amplify and go to Higher Heights Leadership fund.org to learn more. Black voters in Alabama cast votes at a higher rate than white voters despite strict voter ID laws and the closing of DMV offices in predominantly black parts of the state. The organization Woke Vote, a collaborative of grassroots organizers in the South, was part of that success. They heavily canvassed black neighborhoods to register voters and got out the vote for Jones. Go to wokevote.us to learn more. The all-black team at Stay Woke is working with Rock the Vote in Florida to restore the right to vote for those banned from voting due to a prior conviction, because Florida has laws like that. Stay Woke is getting signatures for a petition to get an initiative on the ballot in 2018 that could restore 1.6 million Floridians' ability to vote if passed. Floridians can sign petitions and volunteer, and non-Floridians can donate petitions to be mailed and spread the word. The petition must be completed by February 1st, so go to florida.ourstates.org to get involved. Now, of course, we're only skimming the surface, 
We need to work on closing the wage gap, fight voter suppression laws, fight for a living wage, fight for reproductive justice, help reverse the alarming mortality rate for black mothers, and read black publications and follow black activists on social media to more fully understand the issues that are important to the black community. It's the least we can do, and the fact is, of course, all of society will benefit when we do. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if thanking black women in a tangible way is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about thanking black women with actions, not just words, via social media, so that others in your network can spread the word too. Black women in Alabama, let us have this discussion. <laughs> I love you, booze. I love you. You are the one. <laughs> so number one. <laughs> I love black women in Alabama. Right N- number one, y'all saved yourselves. Yes, you did. Mm-hmm. Okay. Self-preservation babies. Okay. Um, and this is not out of the ordinary in terms of what black women do as voters. Nope. Uh, I, I said this earlier that people are, use this phrase that, you know, one of the things they say is that we're voting black people in, we're just voting for black folks. Mm. But if that was the case, we would have supported Herman Cain and Which we um, did not. A, a brain surgeon. We did not. Okay. So <laughs> we know, um, because we have our full agency, we're intelligent and, um, we know how to be, uh, citizens and voters. We know how to evaluate the candidates that are put before us, uh, look at our issues mm-hmm. and compare them to the background and the issues from the candidates that are presented to us yes. and make informed decisions that benefit us. Right. And so what black women in Alabama said is, these are my issues. These are the candidates. And here is what I, who I think the best, you know, the best candidate is to represent my interests in the Senate. Right. And they chose Doug Jones. Right. So what they were not just doing is protecting themselves from a pedophile. They are protecting themselves from a racist, someone who has been kicked off the federal bench several times because of his inability to apply the law. They knew that he was going to have the power of the purse, the power of the pen. And they said, no, we draw the line at someone who is this blatant, this explicit, um, and this unworthy of the position. And they did it well, the way black women are known to do things. Mm. Jim? A rising tide lifts all boats. And once again, we've proven it and no one can still financially back. I have a question. Okay. Is the Democratic Party uh, like allergic to actually speaking directly to black women or must it always go through the media of some sort? I'm looking at you, Mr. Man. Okay. So, so I will say that they did, you know, you know, tweet, I get, tweet at us. Okay. Hey, black women, we love you. Okay. I believe some it's black women lit. Wrote Hold on. Let me get a meme. Because no, God knows I can't actually talk to you directly and support you and give you money and not do anything besides come and show up at five minutes before when we know we in trouble. Talk about, yo, if we give y'all a quick barbecue, will you support us? Stop it. Well, it remains to be seen. um, Because June, you're right. Larry, you're right. 
I don't want to take black women's agency from them. And I particularly don't want to take the agency away from black women in Alabama who not only showed up and vote, but they were organizing their own communities before anybody else had a focus and attention on their, on Alabama. And that includes funding it. They were funding it the way black women know how to get things done. So they were. So shout out to uh, y'all who were actually on the ground and talking to your neighbors and your family members about that before any national attention was on you know the child predator that was there y'all were doing what needed to be done in order to have somebody who represented you in the senate who um could champion your issues um the second point of um uh, of this conversation is i'm waiting for the i'm waiting for the moment when people will stop inviting us uh to help them move Mm. and not invite us to the house party Ooh. I, love I don't want to go analogy. to either one. I, you can come to my house. How about I start <laughs> to run things? How about you? You know what? You bring a plate. She's saying, you, what do you, you, you bring the wine? Me. You come to my crib. I'm not here to help and uplift you, but you know, I love my social media and my hot takes. And I sat, I watched it all. And you know what I watched? <laughs> I watched the lawyer and Eljoy sit there and get, they, they got very upset mm-hmm. and they don't quite exactly drag people. But what happened to those people? That was a dragging. Mm-hmm. So understand you've got talked to because you was wrong. Do not erase black women. We quietly get the job done. We show up when nobody else is there. We fry the chicken and make the macaroni and cheese. We count the heads. Make sure that when you get on the bus, we leave with the same amount of people we came back with. We do all of these things. Meanwhile, the people who are at the top in charge of the purse strings, who actually want to sit around and dictate how all this goes, they're not doing that they get their list and they knock on the list door they don't even knock on the extra door to say hey oh you might be a black person hi let me say hi to you there's no none of that and we do it for ourselves and then when it happens everybody's shocked well the reason why i continue to talk about this is so um you know and the party is you know trying to do their best in communicating what they are doing (laughs) so you know i i got information and said that they you know invested a million dollars in alabama they also invested some money in you know virginia they hired black people you know in alabama at what point and and how much did that million? What was the amount? Was it a, not was spent? it done in a timely fashion? Because I understand talking points. No. Y'all don't. Y'all don't. Y'all, I'm see, sorry. No, I understand talking <laughs> points, and I also understand timelines. Mm. Where was the timeline? When did that money come? Did it come five minutes before y'all thought y'all was going to lose to a degenerate? Mm. I'm just saying. But those are good questions. I'm because just, see, and people think I'm like, people be like coming at me like I'm extra. I was no, like, y'all, y'all, no, like, I'm the reasonable extra. one. I'm extra. Right. June hit it I'm right on the head. Because I don't even understand what is happening. And the bottom line is, don't just listen, quote unquote, to black women. What you need to do is fund the initiatives. And no, we're not just running off just because you black and doing it. Fund the initiatives because we're doing the work that you obviously are not. We're tired. We're not carrying water. You're just taking advantage of the wave. Understand your position. Help us build this boat. And that's going to be gonna especially say this again. true coming up. Well, no, but that's especially true coming up. We have 2018 elections Ooh. coming up. We have census that is going to need 2020 money. 2020 is we have off 2020. The chain. It takes money to get out to those hard to reach communities. Hello, it takes money. money to be able to funnel resources. But and right now, everybody got to do a GoFundMe listen, for the healthcare because, listen. haha, make America great again, and China don't take our trash. There you go. So yeah, uh, Eljoy, you are not off the mark here. Like not at all. (laughs) No, you know, listen, I'm I'm just trying to provide uh, uh, the context, and because people, you know, have said to me recently, 
right? That um, the party and others, because this is not just on uh, just on the Democratic Party. Well, they're saying how much they spend and they're investing. Well, what else do you want them to do? And I keep saying more. Yes. Right. So it's not, it's not enough. And so for those of you who think that, oh, you're being ungrateful, they're trying, they gave, you know, they're giving money, they're hiring people and things like that. No. Right. Do more. Yes. Do Do what you do for white communities. When you want to get them out, do what you're going to do for them. Don't give us 0.5% of the funding and then talk about how you got 95.5% of the funding elsewhere. Oh, no, because you can just do magic with 0.5. Why would I give you 10? We've always done magic with 0.5. They may not speak on it, but they've watched it. So instead of giving us proper budgets, and they know that we're magic. Nobody can deny that because we take five cents and all of a sudden we've got like a Thanksgiving meal for 25 people. Right. They know this. So we always get low balled. Guess what? And, and, and the next we go around 2018, if you're not coming, there could possibly be a black woman revolt because there are more than enough of us to actually start another party, not be an interloper from another party and try and tell you how to do things. Yeah, brother. I'm looking at you, Ooh. brother. Oh my gracious. So, and this is not, you know, we're having a conversation about black women's political power. Um, and it's not just the other thing that bothers me is that it's not just because of Barack Obama. Now we love Barack Obama. And again, it wasn't just black for black sake, right? Because this here was a candidate that did come, uh, and presented before us who had a background, who had issues, who went out and spoke to, you know, went out and spoke to communities and had a strategy to actually win. Then he had to actually also win over us. Right. Right. And in, in terms in court us in order to win, but black women have registered and voted at higher rates than our male counterparts in every election since 1998. Wow. And we do that more than any other race and gender and subgroups um, mm-hmm. in terms of turnout in 2008 and 2000, in 2012. Mm-hmm. So yes, everybody pr- performed higher, but we right. consistently perform higher since right. 1998. Thank you very much. Right. Um, and we're the most reliable voters. Yeah. Right. And so as I continue to say, the return on investment in investing in black women, investing in, um, black and Latino voters and investing in making sure we have full voting rights and investing in making sure that our issues aren't put to the side because they're too controversial right. and wait for us to pass this tax bill and then we'll get around to voting rights and wait for us to do this and then we'll get around to police accountability. Maybe if the opportunity is right and we don't get, you know, hit by, you know, PBA and the NRA, maybe. Right. Right. No more. Maybe. Yeah. Right. Be out, as my grandmother would say, be out in the daylight with me. Mm. Right. If you need my votes um, and you need my support to actually win and get your candidates, you know, uh, to the particular positions, then which is what I said, even with, you know, Doug Jones winner, because remember, he's also a conservative Democrat. Right. Right. From right. A, and could be it could be well, representing it's those. Alabama. Sta- uh, uh, it's mm-hmm. Alabama. Mm-hmm. And, and those black some of those black women that voted for him are probably conservative Democrats mm-hmm. at that. Yep. Right. Yep. But are they going to champion the the issues that those women that those voters uh, uh, care about? Right. And not just when the time is right. Not just I can compromise on your reproductive choice 
choice right. if this will get us a tax bill or, you know, um, health and, you know, or, or and things like that. Don't compromise our values because the values and the issues that we are focusing on are essential mm. to our life. It is essential to the democracy that I have an unfettered right to vote. Right. It is essential to a democracy that I should not have any fear of police officers in my community and that if I have to have an encounter or my child has to have an encounter with a law enforcement and it does unfortunately result in uh, death or harm that there's going to be some accountability that affects my daily life. Right. It affects my daily life that our rates of cancer and that our rates of access to health insurance, our rates of access to clean water, it affects my daily life. So when you're talking about, well, these black issues that we can't champion that we need to put on the side, these are not just issues. Issues. These are not just what they call cultural issues right. that should be discussed in a salon or in a bar. These are issues that affect our daily lives. And without it, we can't be full participants in this democracy. Right. That's why I'm excited to see this next phase. Now, now that we're putting people in office, I'm looking forward to black women in particular flexing our muscle and saying, no, we're not going to have a city council meeting that doesn't incorporate these issues. And we will shut you down if you try. And no, we are not going to allow the police union to negotiate these types of policies that are going to protect them from any accountability. And we will shut you down if you try. No, Democratic Party, you're not going to come in at 1258 or 1158 and we got to get till midnight in order to provide funding. We will be banned from coming back and we will. We, I'm looking forward to the accountability portion because I don't think anyone can hold you accountable the way a black woman can hold you accountable. And now that we are flexing that muscle in the voting booth, I'm looking forward to the increased civic engagement and the activism taking place in the salons and going from the salons to the city council to the community board and really infiltrating all of these conversations with our needs centered at the discussion. It's time. Oh, definitely. And unfortunately, we... We're getting ready to enter a situation where so many things are going to come at you fast, especially if you aren't on the upper end of the middle or someplace where you're comfortable enough to say, maybe take uh, action like in certain ways. What you need to do is figure out which group holds your same values mm -hmm. and help them out so that they can be your mouthpiece mm -hmm. while you're at work, getting your kids, doing all these things, because the next Three years of our lives is going to be no excuses time. So you voted, we, we voted, we elected, we put you someplace. Best believe we are going to see that you do what we need you to do while you're there. Mm. The primary is always right around the corner. So I think we can stop, stop looking at everything like a death knell, but we have to remember we still have a job after we hit that election. That's right. And if I can't do it because I'm bogged down and no one is saying that, you can go to every community board meeting or every whatever, or you're going to be like those people getting carted off by the police at the senator's office every other day. We're not saying that, but say you like that organization that's doing that because those are your values. You got extra $5, throw it at them. You got time to stuff an envelope, go do it. So please, let's get it done. We got two, three years.
We've just heard clips today starting with Newsbeat explaining riots as the language of the unheard. In the Thick lamented the lack of solidarity that women of color receive from others. Ring of Fire highlighted people of color as basically the reason for the Doug Jones victory in Alabama. The Young Turks explained the racial politics at play in Alabama and voter suppression. Revolutionary Left Radio explained the concept of double consciousness as first described by W.E.B. Du Bois. The Zero Hour discussed Charles Barkley's warning to Democrats to stop taking poor people and people of color for granted. Our activism for today is to thank black women with actions, not just words. And finally, we just heard Sunday Civics celebrating the victory in Alabama and laying out a plan to build on that momentum for the coming elections. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, strangely, we don't have any voicemails for you. Apparently, uh, the conversation going on in the members show ha- has been so exciting and enticing lately that all the messages I have queued up are actually in response to our holiday bonus episodes, uh, but nothing for the main show. So go figure. Uh, and so I'll just take this moment. It, it's a rare one, but sometimes I have thoughts on breaking news of the day, and, uh, and this can be one of those times. Over the last couple of days, as, as I've been producing this show, I have been catching wind, as I'm sure almost uh, all of you have, because it, it's really hard to avoid, about the the new sort of blockbuster book about the inside of the Trump White House and what staffers really think. And basically, the universal consensus is that Donald Trump is one of the stupidest human beings that any of the people who have ever met him have ever met in their lives. So, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this and how this reporting was done. Basically, my understanding is that this reporter ingratiated himself to so many of his sources by writing what people like me and the people who I respect uh, very disparagingly refer to as access journalism, where you have access to these people and you write puff pieces about them and you, you know, disparage anyone who calls them out as bad politicians or bad players in politics or whatever and says, oh, calm down. It's not so bad. And he's a good person, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so he sort of wrote a series of these types of articles to show, look, you can trust me. You can you can let me in your inner circle. Tell me all your secrets and I'm going to make you look good. See, I have a record of making you and people like you look good. And so that seems to be what happened. And he was invited in to the Trump White House by everyone, basically. And then he got the real story and wrote a book completely ripping everyone to shreds, primarily Donald Trump. I mean, the the focus was to interview a couple hundred people and get their perspectives on Donald Trump. And the, the only couple of interesting angles of, of this for me is that, you know, one, might this be the only good case of access journalism I've ever come across? Like, usually people do that kind of access journalism forever because they want to maintain their access forever. This guy seems to have used that kind of access journalism as his Trojan horse, got in, and then blew the place up. That, uh, I don't know that I have respect for that. It's it's a pretty sleazy way 
to do journalism and, and is just fairly gross and unseemly, if you ask me. But, you know, it, it kind of becomes one of those does the end justify the means uh, sort of questions. But here, here's the other aspect of it, which is that this this book is being touted as enormously revelatory. And I don't really think it is at all. Like the news is Donald Trump's a moron. That's not news. So you don't have to get insider sources to know that Donald Trump is a moron. All you have to do is look at him and the things he does and says in public. So to me, the news is that the people who support him most closely, those who work for him most closely, that they think he's a moron. That's that's what the news is. And so it comes close to answering the the forever question. Whenever Republicans are are in power, not universally speaking, th- there are going to be exceptions to this rule, but we were asking this question all throughout the Bush administration and all of the war crimes they were committing, and now we're asking about Trump. Are they dumb? or evil? Do they not know what they're doing? Or do they know what they're doing and know how terrible it is? And, and so that, it, that question almost gets answered in this case. Trump seems like he's dumb. Everyone around him, well, if they know he's dumb, then I, I suppose they would be leaning more towards evil. However, the, the the one little loophole I think they're all going to try to use to get out of it is to say, no, 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 I was trying to reduce the damage from the inside. I was one of the very few competent people there, and I needed to uh, maintain my post. You know, I, I couldn't quit in protest because I was helping uh, keep this ship from running aground. And so, so they're going to try to use that to say, well, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not really evil, even though I'm also not dumb, I was trying to help from the inside. But for me, the more interesting question is actually about the journalism and the ethics of that, because uh, for some reason it hasn't come up too recently, but a pretty strong thread in all of the critical journalism or, or criticism of journalism is this access journalism mentality. The The idea that the media is not supposed to be adversarial to the powerful, but they are supposed to ingratiate themselves to the powerful, maintain access to the powerful, and then write the stories the powerful want them to write because that perpetuates the cycle. And, and this is one of these very, very rare instances where that cycle gets broken. Either, you know, usually either people don't ingratiate themselves and then they don't get to be in the mainstream media and they have to be independent media or they ingratiate themselves and they become part of the access journalism industrial complex. Th- this is one of those bizarre instances where, uh, where, you know, the, the link in the chain snaps. And I find it fascinating. I'd be interested in, in anyone else's uh, thoughts on this. You know, I, I didn't go to J school myself. Uh, so I would love to hear anyone else's thoughts on the ethics of this kind of journalism 
If you want to comment on that or anything else, as always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So come to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.